Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In the summer of 2020, a listener reached out and asked me how I choose the stories I share on Crime Beat. She told me she was trying to seek justice for something that happened to her decades earlier, when she was a teenager. Immediately, we began chatting back and forth. And that was the starting point of this episode. And, you know, it's podcasts like yours that I've devoured, you know, for years. And it's so ironic looking back because I was always really drawn to crime podcasts and and how people worked through, you know, so much trauma. And it was probably only four or five years ago where I really realized like, oh, wow, I have an episode of of my own. (laughs) You know, it took a really long time to realize, wow, maybe I'm really drawn to these stories because I also have my own story. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat, the story of one woman's bravery and how it cracked open one of the most high-profile sex assault investigations in Calgary's history. I don't think we've ever seen a case such as this within the city of Calgary. I'm not familiar if there is even another one within our nation of a predator of this sort within our school system. This is Mr. Gregory's Dark Secret. Over the past few years, Taylor has been on a long journey to healing, and I've gotten to know her pretty well. Taylor is not her real name. I'm protecting her identity for reasons that will soon become obvious. This story begins in the mid-90s, when Friends was must-see TV and Taylor couldn't get enough of NSYNC, the Backstreet Boys, and Britney Spears. I was obsessed with pop music. I remember from a very young age, like, really studying music and how it all worked. And I always had that interest, and I think... You know, I can remember being very young and and opening my mouth and knowing that there was a power and that I had something special. While in elementary school, a teacher helped Taylor find her voice. I will never forget, you know, stepping in front of the choir and feeling like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. From that moment on, music became a central part of her life. By 12 years old, I was playing a lot of fairs. I was playing a lot a lot around town. Um, I, I would literally burn my set on to a CD, a 45-minute set of karaoke songs. And I would get up there and press play and I would sing along to the songs. And I did that for years. Taylor loved performing. But becoming a professional singer at such a young age meant she didn't have much of a childhood. It's really hard to relate to other kids because you're working. Like I was working a lot as a child and I then I come to school and it was it was also hard to juggle that. I wasn't a great student. She struggled with many things, including body image and being sexualized on stage. Then came junior high. And started to go to school across the city at John Ware Junior High School. And that's kind of 
where this all began. That was the year that I met uh, Michael Gregory, Mr. Gregory. He taught me science and outdoor education. He was a very lax teacher. And I always thought, you know, back as a kid that that was so cool. He was just trying to be one of the kids. He was trying to be fun. He was just trying to relate. The whole energy of that class was just fun. And we would just kind of hang out together a lot. I remember that being kind of the norm. And it was really unusual to me because like, obviously none of the other classes were like that at all. And he, he, he carved out moments, I think, to test us and to see who would react in certain ways. And I can remember when I first started to get to know him, I just really wanted him to like me. Taylor said, Mr. Gregory often told jokes or created situations for shock value. For instance, he brought in one time like really hot chili peppers and made us all eat them and then just like watched us suffer and kind of got off on it. And it was really strange. Another thing I remembered is he, he would get all the kids to gang up kind of on one kid and talk them into doing something. Like for instance, eating the hot pepper. And then they would, he would do it, the kid would eat it. And then he would shame us and say, how could you do that to your friend? How could, like, how dare you treat your friend like that? And you'd just be so confused. You know, you, he was the one that told you to do it. What really stood out for Taylor was the effort he made to connect with her in a way that kids couldn't. I, I felt like I was dealing with a lot of adult stuff at home. I was, you know, on stage from such a young age and, and working. And a lot of kids couldn't relate to that. And Mr. Gregory, I saw him as a really close friend of mine, genuinely feeling this deep connection to this person and feeling like, he was, he was there for me in ways that I really needed and that I wasn't getting at home. And it's been, you know, a hard process looking back to unravel all of that because I thought that was a positive, you know? In hindsight, Taylor sees Mr. Gregory was grooming her. He was just a very consistent person in my life, kind of pouring into how, you know, I look back now and it's so inappropriate, but at the time, like, hearing him say how beautiful I was and how perfect I was the way that I was and how I didn't need to lose weight, which is something that was told to me a lot as a kid. Those things completely changed me in that moment and, and gave me like the confidence, you know, that I really needed. And I look back and it really wasn't giving me confidence because it's so inappropriate. But at the time it felt very real. And the friendship that I had with him was so different, you know, from any other relationship I, I, I was able to have with a male figure. Although she didn't particularly like school, she found herself looking forward to Mr. Gregory's classes. Well, there were different things that happened um, in terms of the classroom, like for instance, him allowing me to cheat on exams and me thinking that that was, you know, him being my friend and him watching out for me and knowing that I really struggled academically. I was definitely like more of an artist and more of a creative than um, an academic. And, and, and it made school even more challenging than it already was based on the personal stuff that I was going through at home. And I, I thought that that was a really kind thing he was doing for me. And it also made me feel really special because all the other kids had to take the test and, and I didn't. And the irony was that he made it, you know, he made high school a lot more difficult for me because academically I wasn't prepared. 
because I was able to kind of jump through these hoops in, in junior high, thanks to him allowing me to cheat. Um, it's things like that that I, you know, I look back and, and I used to feel so cool and so important. And in reality, I was being groomed. Because he taught outdoor education, that class was all about leaving the classroom and leaving the school and doing things outside of the school, like swimming and canoeing and biking. And so I think he was, you know, people kind of associated him with fun, I think, based on that subject as well. Mr. Gregory became known for those epic outdoor trips, and they extended beyond the school year. Students gladly gave up their time off in the summer to be a part of his adventures. He would take us through the school on these canoe trips, and they were a totally normal occurrence for our class to go on a trip where we would stay overnight with him for a few days. That was a totally normal thing. We also went on a camping trip that was overnight with him. So that's kind of where the whole concept, I think, started and, and, and felt like it was normal to me on a certain level because we already did it in school. So school, school's wrapping. We're coming to an end. I'm invited on a canoe trip in the summertime with him. At the time, I didn't think anything of it other than, oh, my God, I was chosen. I'm so excited. That trip in the summer of 2001 is when everything changed. I get on the trip, I don't remember much other than we are, I think somewhere in Kananaskis around there, we're pulling off in our canoes, we're starting the trip, and I am in a canoe with Mr. Gregory. He is seated opposite me and we are facing each other in the canoes. And I look up and, three of the female students who were a lot smarter than me were topless and they were canoeing as if it was completely normal but without clothes on and I remember being really confused and and just again I, I can remember just thinking well you know they're really smart they're they're the absolute smartest girls in my school and in my class and if if this is okay with them then it's it must be okay with me. I'm not sure. I wasn't about to take my clothes off, okay? I was still so confused about the scenario. It just didn't make sense to me. And Mr. Gregory took his canoe oar and he put it in my life jacket and he unzipped my life jacket. And I still don't remember how, but I wasn't wearing a shirt underneath. And so pulls my jacket off and for I think maybe a few minutes, maybe shorter than that, I was topless. Um, he was the first person to ever see my breasts topless. And I just got really uncomfortable and decided to put my jacket back on. And the other girls remained topless for quite a long time on that trip. We get to where we're camping that night. And I come to realize that he is going to be sleeping in a tent with another one of the female students. And I was choked because I was so desperate for his attention that I wanted to be the one, you know? So I remember getting upset about that. Um, that's basically all that I really remember from the trip. I remember coming back to school, finding out that they had gone on trips after that without me. And I was devastated. 
And I'm a very outspoken person. And I think that he was starting to realize that and realize that I was, I was going to be a liability to him. So I came back to school, got really mad in front of the whole class, started to throw a whole scene. I remember there was a science lab to the left of the classroom, if you were facing him, and he took me into the lab and closed the door. And that's when he told me that I looked too much like a woman and that he couldn't control his urges around me and that I couldn't come on the trips anymore. Remember, Taylor's body was under constant scrutiny as a singer, so she was extremely sensitive about the way she looked. And I think that he knew that that was the thing that he could say that would just crush my spirit. Because the reality is that I was being told that I was too curvy at home constantly. And I think that's, you know, that's a hard thing to accept. He really knew what he was doing there. Michael Gregory remained in the shadows of Taylor's memories until years later, they resurfaced. I'm 19. I get an email from someone who was in my class and they said, listen, the school's doing an investigation and do you want to speak up and do you want to add your voice to the story? And my entire past flashed before my eyes and I was like, oh my God, like that, that was not only wrong, but that was abuse. Like I... The first man to see me naked, I was 14 and he was my teacher. And I am just now at 19 realizing that that was wrong. I, I remember quite clearly getting that email and feeling very sure that I wanted to fight. And this is also, you know, keep in mind the first time that I'm realizing I was abused. So it all happened very quickly, but my personality is very much... I'm going to fight for what's right. That's just who I am at the end of the day. And I can remember getting that email and just feeling like I will do anything for the students that came after me because unfortunately, I think for the rest of my life, I'm going to feel in some way responsible for that. And this is my chance to right my wrongs and to, you know, start the healing process. And unfortunately, um, you know, contacted some family at that, at that time when I got the email and was basically told to stay quiet and uh, was told to not get involved. And um, my family basically never spoke to me about it again after that. For years after receiving that email, Taylor remained silent about what happened. But the impact of the abuse weighed heavily on her. I felt so uncomfortable. And that has stayed with me, you know. That is something that is hard for me still. You know, nudity is initially with a partner, is difficult. I can just remember being so confused. And then when you realize years later that it was abuse, then there's the shame, you know, of like, why didn't I know? I just didn't know. I didn't know what to think. When you start to realize how these kinds of things stay with you, and you live it, <laughs> I think that's when you start to realize, like, I can't do this anymore. And it wasn't necessarily that I really even wanted to speak up about it. It was just, I couldn't deal with the shame. I couldn't carry the weight of being ashamed of myself. And I definitely couldn't carry the weight of knowing that he was still around young girls and that I felt absolutely responsible for that. 
And that's something still to this day that I'm, I'm going to have to work a really long time to release. But it's probably around 29, 30 years old that I'm finally realizing I, I have to do something about this. So even from there, it took me another five years. It's really wild how trauma stays in your body in weird ways and, and shows up, you know, in, in the moments where you really don't want it to. And I think, you know, I'm actually really grateful for that because I think that shame is is actually what eventually drove me to speak up because I just, I couldn't carry it anymore. I didn't even know what to call it. I still don't even know if I'm supposed to call it sexual assault. Then in 2020, she ran into one of her classmates who was also on that canoe trip nearly two decades earlier when they were in junior high. Seeing the other student at my show and and her and I, you know, in in our early 30s connecting again and looking at her and just the look that she had in her eye, you know, and I just, I had the same look and it was, it's just sadness and it's grief. And it's also just, thank God I'm seeing you and you just understand what I'm feeling right now. And honestly, it was just seeing her and knowing that I could call her and we would talk through it and we'd both go to the police and we'd both tell our stories. And the reality is she had been through so much more than me. And the fact that she was willing to do that, I mean, it, it took a really, really long time for me to unravel that and not only unravel that, but then then feel like anything would even happen if I did come forward. You know, she held my hand through this whole process and she's really like a big reason why I had the strength to finally speak up. It's really been through her support um, and and a couple other friends that that told me to find a local reporter and that you know I, I would I would feel safer if I had someone kind of just walk me through the process and how everything worked and you were you were who I who I found and my friend said you know there's a girl named Nancy Hicks she's got this incredible podcast in town and and I called you and, and you you've really helped me through this whole thing. Shortly after Taylor reached out to me, she called police. So I ended up calling the police, the non-emergency number, and they asked me to tell them my story. So I did. And they basically said, we're going to have two officers come to your apartment and get your, you know, you to read through your statement again in person. So I was like, okay, so I have to tell my story again. So the police officers come into my apartment, which, by the way, is incredibly triggering for sexual assault survivors. I am alone in my apartment with two men, two men, something that I'm very intentional about not happening in my life. I don't like to be alone with strange men. It's something that really honestly scares me. So I was pretty intimidated about that. They, they seemed nice enough, so I kind of just tried to trust it. Um, they had me tell my story again to them, and they took notes and asked me a few questions. Um, one that was incredibly triggering, were you penetrated? Which, you know, is a pretty invasive question, but it also is a big reason why I hadn't spoken up yet either, you know, is I, I kind of thought like, maybe this isn't that bad. He only saw me naked. I wasn't actually raped, but at the end of the day, it is sexual assault. And they took my statement. I, I felt totally re-traumatized, if I'm being honest. Thankfully, I had a lot of support. Um, they then left my apartment and I got in contact with the head detective. 
He asked me to come into the police station and tell my story again for a third time. And I did, and he was quite gracious and and very thoughtful and very sensitive. And um, I think a lot more able to handle the situation than the two officers I'd met the first time. Detective Timothy Fitzgibbon of the Calgary Police Sexual Assault Investigative Unit became the lead detective assigned to this case. I am a major crimes detective with the Calgary Police Service. I've been a policeman here for just under 22 years. He told me Taylor was the first to file a complaint against Gregory with police. During our investigation, we looked back through records that were all available through our systems. We made contact with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police also. And at no point in time did we ever find where any person had reported to either us or uh, to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that Michael Gregory was sexually offending in any manner. But she wasn't the only complainant for long. During the course of our interview with our original victim who came forward, we were able to understand and identify other people who were potential victims uh, from the offender. Because the crime is so personal and people manage it in a very different way depending on the person, some people never report this crime. So for us to go to people and kind of ask them to relive these experiences was a challenge. Uh, However, in this particular case, it was very important for us to at least make some approach to victims that we knew about and try to understand their story. And what we found was there was a very high level of uh, receptive response from the victims. They were all willing to participate in the process moving forward. You know, now they're in their you know 30s, mid 30s, and they're grown adults. And I think what happens is people forget and that when they were victims, you know, they were 14 year old girls. And so when you think back or you look and compare to, you know, 14 year old children that you know, and you're an adult now, you can kind of see how uh, they can be manipulated and they don't quite understand a lot of the things that might be happening around them. And what we found was that Gregory was a master at manipulation of these young women. I don't think we understood just what it would look like until things really started to unfold and we started to see the numbers involved. Michael Gregory was a junior high teacher at John Ware School. He taught from 1986 to 2005 when he faced disciplinary action and later had his license suspended. Currently, the school has an enrollment of less than 500 students, ranging from grades 7 to 9. Detective Fitzgibbon said it became clear very early on that Taylor's description of Mr. Gregory's personality was spot on, and that was found to be a part of his M.O. Due to the nature of his 
we'll call it charisma, I suppose, within the school and even seen amongst teachers that he worked with, that he was kind of considered, you know, the guy, the man. He was the cool teacher. He was the guy who was completely out of bounds from what normal teachers and and uh, would what what students would expect from normal teachers. He would engage with students and he'd say things and he'd do things with students that other teachers just wouldn't. So he, this made him sort of this cool persona. And then of course, the kids at that young age, very impressionable, you know, any teacher who's not acting like the teacher, they found that to be quite cool. Five months after Taylor's complaint launched the police investigation, Michael Gregory was arrested. We had arrested him in February of 2021, uh, executing a search warrant on his residence and bringing him into custody. He was interviewed at length and did not provide a great deal of assistance to the investigation at that time. He was charged. I was the first journalist to report on the arrest. 57-year-old Gregory was charged with 17 sex-related charges for the alleged abuse of six students two decades earlier and using his position of trust to groom female students and get them into situations where sexual abuse could take place. When you look at the spectrum, it goes from maybe uh, touching uh, of a body part, and it doesn't necessarily have to be you know, a one of the sexual body parts, what we would consider the sexual body parts, but it could be sexual touching of the body in a way that is disturbing to the other person because of the implications of that touching. And it goes all the way up to penetration sex, which is at the other end of the spectrum. In the particular case with Gregory, what we found was victims that crossed the entire spectrum. You might be surprised to learn, despite the long list of charges he was facing, Gregory was not held in custody. So under the law, we have to provide the least intrusive manner of release to a suspect in this case. And in this particular case, that became what we call an undertaking. So we charge him with the 17 counts and we then release him on an undertaking. So with that means he has a court date, he has to get fingerprinted and photographed, and there's conditions given to him. He's not allowed to have any contact directly or indirectly with the uh, with any of the victims that are identified at the time. Immediately after my story, along with a media release by police, other victims came forward. And then an unexpected twist. On February 23rd of 2021, several days after he was released, I was notified by the Quadra Island RCMP, which is a small island detachment just uh, off the Vancouver Island coast, and that they had found Gregory deceased at a residence out there. Sources said his death was determined to be non-criminal, 
and non-accidental, confirming Gregory took his own life. I did phone the victims and had spoke with a number of them to inform them about Gregory's death at this point. And it is definitely a challenge. It's not something that you often see, but it does occur in cases like this. Uh, I think especially in a case like this with a predator who had this many victims that, uh, you know, a, a case is left hanging like this. And in fact, it happened so suddenly and quickly that we, in fact, never even had the court documents filed when this actually happened already. The women who had gone forward to police were devastated. There would be no court case, no justice. Despite his death, investigators moved forward with the case. They asked for both victims and witnesses to come forward. Following the death of Gregory, of course we had already done a media release, and so we were taking in information and getting calls from uh, new victims that had seen this. And these victims came from all over the country. They were uh, even even from the United States. Uh, they had called back, called in to say that they were victims of Gregory. We conducted interviews. Detective Fitzgibbon said the number of victims continued to grow far beyond what police had anticipated. So we created a chart for the purposes of the presentation of the evidence and to show the predatory nature of Gregory. And what it shows is, like, if you place on the x-axis of a, of a graph your victims, and then if you place the dateline across the y-axis, and what it shows is that as one victim would leave, a new victim would then become the target uh, each time subsequently. So it just showed that he was constantly offending. If And when one student left the school and went on to high school and moved on, he would get a new, he'd just get the next student the next year in line. It was very apparent his predatory nature over that period of time. It's to be clear, it's not necessarily just because he is a teacher, but it's because he's their teacher that places him in a position of authority. So that's where you end up with the idea of sexual exploitation that comes into play as far as the offenses for him. Now, being significantly older than the students, I believe at the time, you know, he would have been maybe 35 to 45 years of, of age range as, as this time was moving forward. And uh, so significantly older, and extremely manipulative with his uh, conduct in dealing with the young victims. The alleged offenses that we were investigating were from the late 90s in through the mid 2000 region. We do understand though that there were potentially more victims from prior to that time. I don't think I've ever seen, I don't think we've ever seen a case such as this within the city of Calgary. I'm not familiar if there's even another one within our nation of a predator of this sort within our school system. And so understandably, it's important for us to learn about what happened so that we can work with our community partners and try to prevent incidents like this from ever occurring again. And also to understand if 
there is any other levels of accountability that need to be looked into by the police. That's where this case took yet another twist. So in this particular case, we did have victims inform us that they had reported these things to whether they were teachers or principals and or, or other people along the way. So it was important for us to try to understand if there is any level of accountability. I had several people reach out to me with allegations that some school officials were made aware of the sexual misconduct. For more than a year following Gregory's death, police have been looking at whether anyone else could or should be charged in connection with this case. That is another matter altogether when you try to look at other people in the peripheral because you have to be able to prove, and again, beyond a reasonable doubt in a courtroom, that some 20, 25, or 30 years ago, an individual knew something and what they knew and when they knew it and how they knew it and the full scope of what they knew and what they were required to do, if anything, about having that information. So I gathered the information that was available to us and we did seek Crown Council opinion uh, to move forward with investigating whether or not there is anybody else accountable, whether that be an institution or a person and if so, what would the what would we be investigating as police? What would be the crime we would be investigating, if that makes sense? Is it a, a, a sort of, a, you know, is, is it a necessities of life? Is it a, they have some other obligation under a provincial statute or a criminal statute that they are required to report information that they might know? So we, we tried to understand what it is for us as police to investigate. Police said once Gregory stopped teaching, there were no further allegations of abuse. We have found no information that he taught after leaving John Moore Junior High School. And we also found no information that there were any further victims from that point on. But what we've learned is that at some point, probably in around 2004, there were allegations brought forward by another teacher as it related to other misconduct, which then pursued this investigation and that investigation subsequently, by the time to about mid-2006 came around, resulted in the suspension of the license. According to documents recently obtained by Global News, Michael Gregory was the subject of a professional conduct hearing in May of 2006 for alleged misconduct that took place over a 14-year period from 1992 to 2005. He was charged with unprofessional conduct under the Teaching Profession Act for one count of failing to treat students with dignity and respect and one count of unprofessional conduct for failing to maintain the honor and dignity of the profession. Gregory pleaded guilty to both charges. 
The written report by the Alberta Teachers Association Professional Conduct Committee details what happened and what he admitted to. It states Gregory engaged in incidents of inappropriate behavior with students in his outdoor education program that included behaviors and conversation not appropriate for a teacher. It goes on to detail a long list of what's referred to as hazing activities he participated in and directed at students. Those included throwing items like canoe paddles, ski poles, rocks, and dead fish at students, wrestling students to the ground and, quote, pounding on them to teach them a lesson, writing on a student's leg with a marker while classmates held her down, telling female students they were, quote, like tree stumps because they had no breasts, and campfire conversations about dating and partying lives of student leaders, and encouraging and telling of stories filled with sexual innuendo. The report further states Gregory abused, endangered, and demeaned students, and cites a number of examples, including force-feeding a student Gregory's belly button hair, receiving a back massage from a student at a campfire, and duct-taping a student to a tree with student help. The committee found Gregory carried on an inappropriate relationship with two female high school students with whom he discussed his emotional, health, and marital issues, initiated and participated in frequent text messaging, emailing, and phoning at all hours of the day and night, and speculated how it would be to have a sexual relationship with them. According to the report, Gregory discussed with those two students that his wife did not have sex with him any longer and that sex was necessary so that, quote, his prostate cancer did not get worse and that he communicated his threat of suicide to two female high school students and insisted that they attend to him out on the river flats. At his request, the students complied. He reported to the two students that he had a gun with him. Gregory admitted to offering the students alcohol the next night to help them relax following the conversation of suicide, and then suggested they not mention the gun or the alcohol. Again, Gregory admitted to the unprofessional conduct that took place over the 14-year period. In the written decision, the committee found Gregory, quote, showed disregard for the safety, well-being, and dignity of the students in his care, mentally and physically abused his students, coerced and manipulated students for his own benefit, attempted to conceal his wrongdoing through misuse of his authority as a teacher and program leader. Gregory was suspended from the Alberta Teachers Association for two years, but the suspension was to be served concurrently, so totaled one year. However, police said he never taught again. I should note Global News requested a copy of the investigator's report to the Alberta Teachers Association Professional Conduct Committee and was told the documents are not classified for public release. As the police investigation continued, a civil case was launched. 
a proposed class action lawsuit against Michael Gregory's estate and the Calgary Board of Education alleges administrators and staff within the CBE were aware of sexual misconduct but didn't take action to stop it. As of the release of this episode, 27 students and three teachers have come forward to join the $40 million lawsuit. The Calgary Board of Education has filed a brief statement of defense, denying that it's liable, and goes on to state, quote, the plaintiffs were not within the care or supervision of the CBE and or the CBE was unaware of the alleged misconduct. The CBE asks for the dismissal of the claim against the board in its entirety. The estate of Michael Gregory has also filed a statement of defense, denying any wrongdoing on its part or the part of Mr. Gregory. The document states Gregory's wife first became aware of any of the allegations of abuse on the day he was arrested in February of 2021. The statement of defense goes on to suggest the civil action wasn't filed in time and is past the period prescribed in the Limitations Act. The allegations detailed in the lawsuit have not yet been proven in court. Just days before the release of this episode, on March 31, 2022, Alberta Education Minister Adriana LaGrange tabled new legislation to remove the disciplinary process from the mandate of the Alberta Teachers Association. If passed, an arm's-length commissioner will be appointed to oversee teacher and teacher leader conduct and competency complaints for the profession. This process would apply equally to all teachers and teacher leaders, whether they're members of the Alberta Teachers Association or not. The Alberta Teachers Association opposed the changes and pointed to the fact the CBE is the party being sued for inaction, not the ATA. The ATA said, quote, its hearing committee was not presented with evidence of many of the sexual allegations that have more recently come to light, end quote. As we were finalizing this episode, Global News obtained a copy of a letter dated July 31, 2006, from the Alberta Education Minister to the ATA, acknowledging that the ATA notified the province of Gregory's suspension by the Professional Conduct Committee, the minister went on to confirm the suspension for two years. When we followed up and asked why the province didn't report this to police, we were told the current government, quote, cannot speak to the actions of previous ministers or governments, end quote. Back to the Calgary police investigation into whether third parties could face criminal charges. If you're listening today, April 6th, 2022, you're the first to learn details of that investigation. I can only tell you a certain amount of this, Nancy, just because uh, this particular part, it is a legal opinion, so it is privileged to us. So I can only tell you sort of the final outcome of that. So, 
After having Crown Council do a review on the matter, it was determined that as of today, there is no further charges that will be pursued against any person or corporate entity, you know, such as CBE or the ATA, for example, you know, as when you talk about corporate entities. But that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that that couldn't change, you know, tomorrow or the next day or whatever that looks like. I'm not suggesting that that would occur. I'm merely stating that based on the evidence that we have in our possession today, there's insufficient evidence to proceed in any other fashion towards criminal charges or responsibility of any other kind against another entity or person. Detective Fitzgibbon told me that doesn't mean adults or officials at the school weren't aware of the alleged abuse. I would say that during the course of my investigation, I came to an understanding that there were potentially people that knew things were happening and that action could have been taken that wasn't taken. However, in saying that, I would also say that I do understand people in general and the difficulty that people have, generally speaking, in moving forward with allegations of that nature against somebody when they just haven't seen it with their own eyes, if that makes sense. We did have information provided to us by victims that we spoke with that the victims uh, and parents, and I won't say specifically who or, or when, but between victims and parents, information was provided to whether it be a principal or another teacher or to the ATA during an investigation um, that these things were happening. However, still based on that information, the threshold for proceeding in a criminal proceeding is incredibly high. And the evidence to support the exact nature of the knowledge, I would say, did not meet the standard. Fitzgibbon said in consultation with the prosecution, it was determined that at this time, there's insufficient evidence to proceed with criminal charges against another entity or person beyond Michael Gregory, who is deceased. This file, because of the nature and magnitude of the offenses, will remain as a, I guess, an open but background file for the Calgary Police Service. It's not something that we will currently pursue investigation of. However, it is the type of investigation whereby if new information were to come forward, there might be leads for us to pursue and at which point we would be obligated to pursue those. What the new investigative findings would show that maybe there are other agencies or entities that might have some responsibility, but at this moment in time, that doesn't exist. Detective Fitzgibbon said, what really stands out in this investigation is the scope, the enormity of damage 
that one person allegedly caused. I think what makes it stand apart is just who he was and the amount of victims in the wake. He was a guy who, although a predator, he used his charisma, he used his abilities as that outdoor education guy, he used his off-the-wall personality, all of these things to be able to manipulate his victims. And for him, it worked. I have never seen a case of this magnitude before. I have investigated a lot of crimes and a lot of different types of crime, including sexual offending crime. And I've worked in our high-risk offender program in the past and dealt with, at great length and detail, with sexual predators. But I have never, ever had the opportunity to work on a file such as this, where we had a person in that sort of position of, of trust commit this many crimes over such a lengthy period of time. You know, I got to tell you, I think this group of women that we have dealt with are brave and courageous to have come forward with their stories and allowed us and allowed me the privilege to work for them and allowed us as the service to go after this predator who committed a lot of crime and a lot of personal crime and left so much damage in his wake that it's really unspeakable. To date, Fitzgibbon said there are 16 female victims who've come forward to police alleging abuse. CPS has also spoken to 35 witnesses. When you look, and I, I urge anyone who thinks about a case like this, it's not the adult that you're looking at. You have to look, and, and I always say, look around you. you. If you have a 14-year-old child, or you have a 14-year-old niece or nephew, or you have a neighbor who has a 14-year-old child, as soon as you interact with these children, you get it. You understand what you know their, their mental capacity truly looks like, and you then realize just how they, they, they can be so easily victimized. And that's the troubling part is Gregory took such extreme advantage of that in his position. And that's what made this case so troubling. I began covering this story when Taylor reached out nearly two years ago. So much has happened since that first conversation. From that monumentous first step to go to police, to news of his arrest, and then his suicide, to the filing of the civil action suit, Taylor said it's been a lot to take in. I tried to be as prepared as I could going into speaking with the police and fighting for myself. And I remember sitting with the police and telling them, you know, there's probably like at least 20 victims um, at, you know, probably bare minimum. And to see this case unfold and grow is pretty devastating. You know, realizing that we're not going to get justice because he committed suicide before he had to face any consequences for his actions. 
that was really hard to un unwrap and to understand and to grieve and to then realize that the only place that we could now put our fight was in a lawsuit. And I don't think any of us expected to go that route either. But at the end of the day, like these things happen as they happen and, and you have very, very little control as a survivor of these things. You know, you asked me why I finally chose to speak up and I've heard so many victims say it this way in the past, but I don't think I really understood until now. I had no choice. I couldn't carry this anymore. I've seen my own healing process completely change my life and deepen my relationships with my friends and myself. And it has also completely changed how I sing, which is really, really fascinating that, you know, the more that I'm dealing with my trauma, the more I'm kind of able to emote and create from a deeper place, I think, because there was, there was just trauma in my way. And now that it's not there, it's like, it, I kind of feel like a whole new person, you know? And I, I really want other survivors to get to feel that. I would like to take a moment to thank Taylor for coming forward and sharing her story. Her bravery allowed so many others to share theirs. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. Thanks to Chris Bassett, the VP of Content, Distribution, and Editorial Standards for Global News. I also want to thank Global Calgary's editorial assistant, Jessie Wisner, for her help on this episode. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, on Instagram at Nancy.Hickst. And if you have a longer story idea that you'd like to share with me, you can email me at nancy.hickst at globalnews.ca. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.